Hey everybody, this is Terry Mitchell with the Voice on Fire interview series. And for those of you who may not have tuned in to watch any of my videos, either on YouTube or listening to the podcast, uh, this is an interview series where I provide a platform to people that I think of as change makers, difference makers, life influencers, they're action takers. They're people that have a mission, they've got a story, they're doing something to have an impact either in their local area or maybe even across the globe. And those stories sometimes are really quite, quite moving and they can really have uh, a real heartfelt story behind them. And today's guest, I have Jason Nelson with me and his story is one that I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to. Uh, Jason's all the way over in WA and in, that for those who may not know what I'm talking about, that's Western Australia in uh, Aussie speak. So I'd like to um, welcome you, Jason. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Terry. It's a real pleasure to be here. Excellent. Excellent. So for those of you who would uh, probably uh, like to know a little bit more about Jason's story, I'd like to uh, have you open up, Jason, with a little bit about what it is you're actually doing. So the primary questions I'm going to go through with you are, what is it you do, why do you do it, and who do you do it for? So let's start somewhere in that framework. What is it you do? Um, by and large, I suppose that the overall umbrella I sit under is, is passionate mental health advocate, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the passion. Um, I um, I do a lot of public speaking in that space, um, sharing my journey, um, touching on different topics such as resilience um, and um, managing stress and workplace issues, workplace wellness, um, and also deliver um, mental health workshops such as and de-escalation skills, mental health de-escalation, mm -hmm. and um, I'm currently developing a new um, storytelling academy for other people with lived experience who may want to step out uh, to share their story, mm -hmm. which, as you may know, is um, is actually quite therapeutic. It's quite a healing uh, process by being able to not just share it in a clinical setting, but being able to share it openly, leaning into your vulnerability. So I'm putting together that at the moment to allow others to be able to do the same because when you share that message, you're also sharing a story of hope mm. and providing people who don't think they, they may be able to come out the other side of, of mental health challenges. Um, the reality that you know 70%, 75% of all mental health challenges are, are fully recoverable. Mm. But people just don't know that. They don't have that, that information at hand. And I think um, the strength and the power of lived experience stories um, really helps people to be able to, to open up and hold someone's hand um, uh, and walk through things together. Mm. Mm, definitely. I totally agree. Um, and just to um, highlight what you were saying there, you mentioned lived experience and part of what is driving your mission is your own lived experience. So uh, obviously there's, a, a, we've, you know, we're both of that vintage where we've both got fairly long stories that we could share, but what's been the, I suppose the, the primary part of your story that was, I guess, 
for want of a, a better word, at the pivot? What was that part of your life where it was obvious that something wasn't perhaps tracking the way it could have? So what led to it and where are you at with all of that now? Um, yeah, as you touched the the uh, issues that I now understand are, are far-reaching and, and go back many, many years. <coughs> However, um, kind of came to a head for me initially in um, 2008. I, I'd come over with my family to Australia in 2006, uh, former UK police officer and, and WA police were recruiting internationally, experienced police officers because of the mining boom, a lot of police officers left the service over here and, and were going into mining resources. So they, they were desperately needing to get experienced people on, on the road. So I came over with a family and um, I suppose long story short, two years in, I'd, I'd managed to go from general duties back into um, my sort of experience skill set, which was uh, undercover policing and covert policing. Um, but on that unit, I, I was bullied for a period of about six months just daily um, by senior officers on that unit and um a lot of a lot of the pressures i put on myself then um being a father new to the country building a new house you know although we've been here two years um still settling family my kids in uh, and also trying to probably settle myself in more because um policing here procedurally was very different in the uk uh, and I found it really frustrating. However, um, so as a result of the bullying, um, I became extremely depressed um, quite rapidly. Um, you know, I really felt a loss of identity. Um, and previously to police and being in the military, I, I was, I, you know, I've been working in this high risk um, well dominated stigma fueled culture for so long that I, I just didn't feel uh, I was allowed to ask for help um, I feared losing a career feared losing um, any self-worth I had left from my family you know I, I, I needed to be the strong one like the fulcrum or the keystone to the family and, and if I if I fell apart everyone would fall apart mm. um and I kept it within, I kept it buried in for a long time. Um, increased um, alcohol to try and mask that or, you know, bury the symptoms so I could sleep. Obviously that just exacerbates the symptoms of depression. Um, and then uh, as a result, I, I attempted to take my life several times actually over a period of a few weeks. Um, during one of those attempts, my wife disturbed me, discovered what was going on, and, and that was the first time that kind of led me to open up to anyone, really. Um, long story short, that's that's when it started. So I was, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety then. So that was um, like 12 years ago. Um, came good. Um, and then I um, had a... a hernia operation about five years ago now 
six years maybe um six years uh had a routine hernia repair and um while on the which went well while on the ward about three hours after um i had a sleep induced panic attack which uh, almost killed me basically i awoke with my um heart racing at 170 beats plus and my resting heart rate sits around 50 and um they couldn't they couldn't reduce it i was short of breath uh, i honestly thought i was i was having a heart attack or something um and those symptoms continued for for hours they had a crash team called in um they were talking about um you know getting the paddles on me and zapping my heart to get it back into a normal rhythm um yeah so I came good after that and, and at that time was in a good place mentally. I was actually almost virtually off my medication and, and uh, yeah, sailing really well. But what that incident did, that traumatic incident itself, uh, basically pushed over the, the bookshelf of all the traumatic uh, incidents that I'd endured in my life um, uh, back into the forefront of my mind. So. That included uh, childhood sexual abuse, um, uh, the loss, uh, grief of my grandmother, who was the first sudden death I experienced as a police officer. Um, one of my best mates died the early hours of my wedding day um, when we were just finished out celebrating the night before I got married. A tragic accident, he um, fell to his death. Um, out of a hotel window. Um, and then, um, my, not so much my military career, but policing career, all the incidents that I'd been to, you know, horrific crime scenes, road traffic collisions, um, delivering death messages to people, all those type of things just came back and haunted me. Um, and uh, again, I sought help and started receiving help for that. Um, and then a short time later, my youngest daughter, Holly, attempted suicide twice over a period of three months. Um, she, um, a lot of it, you know, we we just saw as, uh, as moody teenager behaviour became quite withdrawn into a room. Um, but what we didn't know at the time, and, I, and at the time, I... I was at odds why I couldn't see it, but I now understand through the education and, and uh, qualifications that I've sought in mental health that everyone's experience is completely unique and individual. Mm-hmm. So what I might have felt uh, when I was suffering, Holly, and when she was experiencing troubles, um, was completely different from her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that kind of rocked the family a bit uh, and threw me off kilter. As you could expect, the anxiety of going through that, and um, Holly had both tried to overdose twice. So you know, seeing your daughter in a state of unconsciousness and and getting treatment, um, and she was hospitalised twice for a period of a couple of weeks each time on adolescent um, mental health ward. So um, yeah, and that was um, shortly after then. 
And then it, it started manifesting in me physically. Then I, my digestive system started breaking down. I, I got diverticulitis. Um, so about 12 months after Holly um, had attempted suicide, I ended up having, have, having half of my colon removed um, because my, my digestive system was just stuffed. Um, that, all, that all came good. Um, they were really, because of what had happened after the hernia, the hospital really really careful with me and, and watching me so I, just in case I had anything reoccur and then um, as I touched on before the childhood sexual abuse started playing on my mind again and I'd kept that to myself for 35 plus years but I decided um, that I, I wanted this person to know that what what he'd done to me was, was wrong um, if at all he could be taken, made accountable. Um, so I decided to report it to the police in the UK and made my statement, fully aware, being an ex-detective myself, that historical sexual abuse cases are very hard to prove. It's, it was my word against his. And he was a cadet instructor. He was, he was a family friend and a person in a position of trust back then. Uh, and I knew I wasn't the only victim. Um, so I went through that process uh, and as you could understand that PTSD then for me um, just went off the scale and this was um, 2017 mm. to late 2017 and uh, yeah I was, I was having terrible time sleeping terrible flashbacks um, again I, I went back and try and find some sort of support in the, in the bottom of a glass um, and that got um, worse and worse as my tolerance level grew I was I was drinking up to three bottles of wine a night still getting up early of a morning highly functional in work but come afternoon I was hanging out for a drink mm. um, and then when when the drink stopped kind of taking the edge off I, I, I started smoking cannabis as well um, so I was just loading up on, on illicit substances, which really weren't helping me. They were just exacerbating. Um, so while I waited for the court case to come to a head, which was March, April time, 2018, um, they had recommended that I didn't seek any meaningful therapy for what I was going through because um, should I have to give evidence via video link they wanted my witness testimony to come across as authentic uh, and not desensitized as such, um, which I understood, but um, probably one of the only things I've regretted in life doing was holding off getting that help because uh, by the time the court case came around and he, and he pleaded guilty, surprisingly, I um, it was too far gone for me. I was, you know, I was in such a dark, dark place, worse than ever before. Um, that Yeah, I, the only way for me, I saw for me was to take my own life. So um, September the 4th, 2018, I, um, I attempted to take my life again. Um, thankfully, um, I was picked up by police. Um, they took me to hospital. I ended up being in a mental health ward for two weeks. 
And people think, say, oh, how was that for you? And I actually say it's probably one of the best two weeks I've ever had in my life, mm. strangely enough, because I had the peace, I had the quiet, I had no distractions, and it was the first time I was able to work on me fully. Mm. And and that's not saying that in a selfish way. Like I obviously love my family and my kids and my wife, and that, but I... I I think I truly needed that time to step away, to be really honest with myself. Even though I'd, I'd sought help before, I um, I always held back a little bit. There was always a little bit that I I, would, I didn't, I was, I don't know, they were scared, but I, ju- I just didn't want to fully immerse myself into that recovery or treatment or therapy situation until this point. Mm. Um, but at that point, that's when I chose to. And, um, yeah, nearly two years on, I'm the, the best position I've been in psychologically, I think, in my life. Mm. Um, there's nothing much that really phases me now, but and that, but that's been hard work. Mm. Um, and I still see my psychologist. I've got an appointment with her tomorrow. I still see her at least monthly. Um, and, and people say, well, if you're in a good position, why do you see a psychologist? Well, now I've built in that resilience buffer. Now I can really put hard work in and, and create that and extend that buffer even further, get a greater understanding while my brain is able to process, while I'm, while my amygdala isn't hijacked, while my hippocampus isn't all messed up, you know, and, and my frontal lobe, my brain is able to process better than it ever has done so. That's why I put the hard work in now. Yeah, look, that's one hell of a story. And I'm sure that there are going to be any number of listeners and people who watch this video who will probably feel very, very triggered by some of what you've shared. So I openly say to anyone who is listening or to anyone who is watching this, please do not attempt to go through any of your difficulties on your own. I am able to coach people and I am also a, an ex-psychiatric nurse. So I do understand everything that Jason just spoke about. And I also have my own lived experiences. So there's a lot that I can relate to in that area of life. But do not go through anything alone. Reach out. I am available. Even if you just need someone to talk to, by all means, the contact details for myself and, and for Jason are going to be loaded in the description of this video. So if you scroll down underneath the video, you will see the description and you'll see the details of how you can contact us just so you've got a familiar voice that you can listen to, someone to talk with, share your problems, don't go through it alone. Jason, thank you for sharing that. It is really, really hard sometimes to admit just how how dark the world can seem even when everything else around you to other onlookers would seem to be okay. You know, hey, you're married, you've got kids, you're, you know, how lucky are you? But the inside of you is so messed up, you don't know how to see anything other than the darkness. And the, the, the amazing thing about the human brain, the human mind, the human being is the resilience. And the, the one thing that stood out, and I certainly can echo it, but the thing for, I guess, any of our uh, viewers and the audience to understand there, there is that place that we can go into that just feels so, so utterly hopeless and full of despair. 
there doesn't seem to be a way out and it's not a coward's choice to back out and want to just end it. It's not a coward's choice. It's absolutely overwhelmingly ridden with fear and you just can't see that you have anything left in the tank to be able to process just one more thought, one more day, one more expectation, one more vision of what the world's going to look like. To, to echo back a little bit of what you shared there, I have my own experience of uh, child sexual abuse and I also many, many years later as an adult reported it to the police, received phenomenal support through the police initially. Um, but again, his word against mine, um, he actually is an ex-Vietnam veteran and claimed, oh, I have PTSD, I don't remember. <laughs> and I, I laugh when I say that because it's like, yeah, you didn't have PTSD back then. So it's, it's a cop-out for him. He doesn't want to be caught out. He knows he's done something wrong. Um, and it's hard for me in one sense because I, you know, I found I was on Facebook one day and there he was, and not because he was following me, it's just I happened to look up to see if he was on Facebook. And I, I almost had a mental breakdown. Um, it was, it just, the sucker punch to my gut was just like, oh, he's still real, he's still there and he's still around. And um, yeah. the weirdest and most, most haunting irony in my case um, was I'd flicked over to watch um, Australian Story on the ABC at one stage. And little Patty was um, recounting her time when she went over to Vietnam. And she was back there for the purpose of this story many, many years later. So there was a documentary done about her return. And as the camera was panning around talking with her in the forefront, in the background, he was standing there. And, and I literally almost had a breakdown. I, I was just numb. I was beyond. I, was, I still couldn't yeah, find a way to describe it. And it's... It's really confronting seeing your attacker or your abuser. I um, I was unfortunate to to see mine a couple of times before I moved out to Australia. Mm. One where I just literally almost walked into him in the street, oh. and um, another occasion, and, and that was the first time I actually disclosed what happened to anyone because I was with my wife at the time, and the colour drained out of me, and mm. I, I almost froze, you know. And, my natural fight or flight biological response is a fighter, but that's mm. the only situation where I've, I've felt that freeze. Mm. Um, so it was that occasion. And then I saw him, he, he was actually on a church stall at my children's primary school, Summer Faith, mm. when I saw him again. And, and this guy's a, a, a career pedophile, for mm. want of a better word. He's been a pedophile. Well, there's life in and out of prison. Um, so, yeah, and that, you know, I was really angry that day and reported it to the to police and, and he ended up having his, he was out on licence at the time and had his licence revoked as a, as a result of that. But this is, you know, still many years ago. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a horrible feeling when you see that. So I, I totally understand when you say, gut-wrenching and you're almost breaking down because you're sent back to those moments instantaneously yeah. straight away and, and you're reliving them you know yeah. in that technicolor Dolby surround sound situation as you will know um, but I just want to say as well yeah I, I mirror your comments with, with regards to the content normally with my presentations I, I always start out with, with saying look just consider the content and what I'm going to be sharing with you today because 
we don't know the experience of our listeners or our audience, but yeah, I agree with you 100%. Some of these things can can um, obviously help people's emotional arousal, but also, um, also want to support you in saying yes, um, people can reach out to me too. I'm a qualified peer support worker. Um, I do a lot of work for, for charities and, and WA police here. So, um, yeah, please don't think that you have to do this alone. Um, I'm more than happy to provide that hand of hope until you can walk with your own hope again. It's it's yeah. not an easy road to recovery. It's, it's non-lineal, but it's possible. So, yeah, yeah please yeah. reach out and, and seek help. Definitely, definitely. And I, I guess that's the, the, the next part of our conversation really is really to inspire hope um, for everything that I know I've gone through and I, I look upon the experience that I've had as being, you know, you, you just, you look back and you think you would never let someone go through it. You would never let someone go through it. Yeah. I, I don't regret it in a lot of ways. I've had some pretty horrific things happen, but I don't regret it. And the reason I say that is once you are able to find the resources, and that's not just externally, it's internally, once you're able to discover that you have the courage, you are brave, you are remarkably resilient, and once you find that you are actually a powerful person and it's getting that power balance, once you remove the power from the perpetrator and put the power back within yourself, you become so intensely powerful. As you say, nothing can phase you. You become, in a way, it's hard to describe it as being relaxed, but you become fairly much at peace in yourself. And I now know that if I was confronted by anybody from the past that's done anything to me, to be like, yeah, whatever, I'm, I'm cool. You're the one with the problem. I'm good. And I'm comfortable saying that. And in that sense, for our listeners, there is... There really is hope, and I would I would never have even thought I'd be the person sitting here comfortably in front of a microphone talking to people that I've never met before, but having really intense conversations about really meaningful stuff. I never thought I'd be that person, but I'm just I'm on an upward trajectory, and I know that I've got so much ahead of me. And had I not had the support, had I not reached out, had I not spoken to somebody about what awful things had been happening you know, I would be a headstone. That would be all I would be. I'd be a headstone. I'd be a memory for people. But I, I just had that one glimmer of hope. Like one person chose to believe in me and that just turned all the tide. So there is always that one glimmer of hope. And, you know, without, I, I guess, without um, diminishing the impact of what it's like to go through the trauma, Trauma in itself, I, I, I think of it as almost like um, it is that growth um, fertiliser, really. It's, it, you can use it as a growth fertiliser. It can grow you. It can make you an infinitely better person. So just from that perspective, and we know that we're sort of pretty much on the same page there, um, where, where are you up to in terms of what you're doing? Have you got future plans? And obviously COVID is really affecting us here, and this is, you know, sort of for... You know, this video will be around for, you know, in perpetuity. So people are going to look back and think, oh, that was during COVID times. And, you know, as a speaker, how are you finding? What What is it you've now had to do to channel your energy there? Oh, look, COVID is pretty much, um, other than um, the odd online 
speaking engagement is pretty much um, stopped any any work in that area for me. Um, but that's fine, you know. I think there's at the minute for a lot of people there's a lot more important things going on um, with regards to managing that pandemic for for a lot of people and businesses. Um, but I have been doing a lot more one-on-one work with people um, who've been reaching out. Um, it, it's actually, um, it, it's been a bit of a double-edged sword. One, mm-hmm. one, it's it's um, given me time to for a bit more introspection and, and reflection on myself, um, and be able to um, kind of revisit a lot of my creative outlets, such as painting and poetry and things. Um, uh, and and at the same time, um, during this, the COVID, I found out that my daughter's expecting, so I'm going to be a grandfather at the end of the year, That's um, right. which is Holly, which is Holly as it happens, who, who was um, really struggling when she was 15, 16, 17 with borderline personality disorder and rights, but she's blossomed into this wonderful young woman mm. who's now expecting her granddaughter, so... Um, yeah, I see it as a blessing in, in many other ways. Um, and it's also given me the, the opportunity to develop um, this storytelling academy um, that I'm going to be bringing online towards the end of the year. So um, to give others the opportunity to share their story. Um, but I, and I agree with what you were saying before, Terry. The, I see what I've been through. Um, and I, you know, and that's, I've just scraped the surface where I talked to you about earlier, um, about other physical injuries and, and things that I've had to, to get through physical trauma as well from accidents and injuries. But, um, I see it as a gift, you know, this, what I've been through is a real gift. And, um, it was, it was going through what we did with Holly at such a young age. That was the turning point for me. That's when. I found my voice. I thought I cannot let not just adults, but um, adolescents, youth go through what we've been through, or families go through what we've been through. And I thought if I find my voice and I can at least help one person, just one person, um, then, you know, I've done a good job. But um, that's where my passion lies, you know, helping other people um, step out of that, that comfort zone of being them you know, uh, and actually getting comfortable in the uncomfortable mm. to be able to um, lean in to the vulnerability because that's where the courage is. You know, once you own your own story, and rather than the story owning you, then you've got the ability to write the next, chap- next chapters and write the ending. Yeah. Um, and and this uh, process for people, it, it, it's obviously different for everyone, but... Um, even with the one-on-one coaching and mentor, and I use different strategies and tools depending on that person's life traps, I suppose, or limiting beliefs. And we'll work on those uh, individually for that person to be able to to set growth strategies, um, to be able to set realistic goals um, and take a step towards um, all the beauty in life rather than sitting in the gray and black and being able to open up that palette of color yeah. again in the life yeah yeah it's beautiful words palace of color absolutely and it's it's something i think we probably we probably are saying 
fairly easily in words now, but we both know that, you know, um, we're both probably in our 50s thereabouts. And so when you're in that vintage, it's, it's life does become a lot easier within after, you know, not so, not so that it becomes easier, but processing yourself and self-reflection becomes a bit easier just simply because I just think you've reached that point in yourself where there is a, a lifting of some of the burdens of life in that mentally you become less inclined to worry what other people are thinking. But you also, if it's anything like my story, that sense where you, you find that when you stop worrying about other people and accept yourself and, as you say, own your story, that, that journey, we say that so easily, but it's that journey that gets us to that point. So it's easier when you're older only because, and it's not to say it's easy, it's just easier. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say with this, and I wonder if it's something that you, you could echo, maybe in the 20s and the 30s, you just don't have the developed sense of self-awareness and things that are traumatic seem infinitely more traumatic because a lot of what we go through is um, it's suppressed and repressed. Some of it we choose to block and others it's just so traumatic we can't deal with it and it becomes so blocked that when you're not in touch with those feelings, you're just functioning. You're just functioning every day and you think mm -hmm. that you're okay and you think you're doing well, but as you get older and, and you start fundamentally realising you can get through that crisis and here you are and you get through that crisis and here you are and it's like you don't necessarily stop dealing with crises. It's more that you find you've got other resources to help you deal with the crises. There's a developmental process, I suppose, and a growth process. So I guess the clumsiest way that I've just tried to describe that is in all of this time, when you're going through difficulty, so for anyone that's hearing this, if you're going through difficulty, the process of recovery and discovery takes time and it will take as long as it takes for your personal story. And as Jason said, even if you're receiving coaching, you might hear someone say, oh, yeah, I had coaching for that and here I am now. Comparison doesn't work. You have to be acknowledged for who you are, your own uniqueness and your own story and find the gift that is you. And that's partly why I created the Voice on Fire series because, as you said, it's about finding your voice. And I really want people to understand that if you don't find your voice, you never find a way to share who you are and become the really authentic version, which is the best version of you. So, 100%. yeah. Yeah, well, the thing is, people don't realise that we're, we're negatively hardwired from birth. Uh, and when you think about it, when people say, well, that's not true. Well, when you think about it, it, it is true. And the reasons being is because throughout life we're always seeking things to make us feel better wherever that is you know whether it's going out for a night out whether it's um trying to find what happiness is you know going on holidays um buying nice clothes wherever that may may be we're always seeking on a daily yearly weekly monthly basis something that uh, that makes us feel good whether it's validation from each other etc so we're hardwired with these 
18 schemas or life traps right from birth. But as we learn and grow as children, these some of these will become more dominant than others. So for me, um, self-sacrificing, defectiveness, um, fear of failure, and unrelenting standards, they were the foremost dominant for me. Uh, and that, and everyone's completely different. Uh, and I'm on, on top of that as well, we're, we're all taught from a very early age to suppress our emotions. Mm. Um, and that's not a bad thing per se. It's just how we've evolved as a society, as a, as a, as a culture. Um, and I, the example to give are, and, and I've done this to my children and my parents done this to me, is that, um, for example, I'd fall over and scuff my knee, for example, and I'd, and I'd cry as a child. Mum would say, look, it's, it's only a scuff. There's no need to cry. Well, why isn't there a need to cry? Just let them cry. I should have been allowed to cry because I'm feeling pain at the time or I'm feeling scared or shock. Same if a child is sad about something. We might say, oh, it's nothing to be sad about. It's nothing to be down about. Well, why isn't it? It's that person, that little person trying to express their emotions. Um, or they might be... Uh, a bit boisterous and loud and laughter in the background where you're trying to do something and you tell your child to quieten down, William, I'm busy doing something. Well, these are all examples of suppression uh, of children's emotions. And then we've, we've built that in right from an early age. So they learn that later on, they're like, oh, I, I can't cry about that. I shouldn't tell mum about that. I shouldn't tell dad about that because they'll tell me I'm not allowed to cry about it or I shouldn't cry about it or I shouldn't be happy about this or I shouldn't find that funny. The reality is we should just let them be and, and let them discover those emotions because right now, uh, as well as this worldwide pandemic, one of the biggest epidemics we're facing with our with our youth is is anxiety through social media and um what people don't understand about how brain, the brains work is um, anxiety caused by that amygdala being hijacked and firing off that alarm in the brain all the time. And that, that disconnect between the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex cause, can cause part of your brain to shrink, like the hippocampus. Some people aren't able to process the things that they're interacting, they're taking in, because that part of the brain is always on fire. And Social media is designed, the algorithms are designed um, with psychiatrists and psychologists on hand to make them more addictive. Um, I certainly found with my children growing up that, that almost addiction to want to be connected 24-7. You know, as I grew up and, and as you say, Terry, we're a certain vintage where I went, went to school. I might have a couple of mates around the, the, the street where I used to live, but... There was no mobile phones back then. Um, the landline you know, was so expensive that my mum used to have an egg timer next to it, you know. It'd be like, well, that 50 pence for that call's coming out of your, your pocket money or whatever, you know. And very rarely used the phone because my folks would say, we will see your mates tomorrow anyway, you can speak to them. Yeah. And um, so we had that break. We came home, we might have played out in the street, might have done something, but we had that solid communication break from people other than family. And more often than not back then, um, as a family, you used to sit around a dinner table, discuss what had gone on in your day, your working day, your school day. And, and that social interaction within your own little tribe would continue. And a lot of that's broken now mm. in society. Yeah. Um, and I think and I think that's why uh, a lot of people have grown 
not to know how to talk, not to to feel um, able to speak openly about things. Um, and as you said, with my coaching, uh, as you do, I I look at that person individually. I find out what um, I, I make all of my my coaching or mentoring person centered to them. I find out what their strengths and interests are. Um, I find out who their social networks are, what their culture is, what their, how their spirituality is. And I'm not necessarily talking religion. I'm just talking about what their beliefs and values are. And we work around those because they're the things when that we forget first. Mm. When, we're, when we're starting to feel depressed or starting to face mental health challenges or as I like to call them, mental fitness challenges, they're the things that drop off first, the things, the motivation to do exercise, the motivation to read a book, motivation to do some drawing or just even go for a walk or contact friends, you know, friends that you normally socialize with. I don't feel like socializing. Mm-hmm. So these are the little things that drop off first, but can have a massive effect um, on us uh, as a risk factor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I know that when, when people reach out to be coached, just reaching out is a, a fundamentally huge thing. Just acknowledging that. And one of the things that I say, um, and, and depending again who the client is, but um, just the other day I actually said to my client, you know, I just want you to know I, I do hear you, I acknowledge you, and I want you to know that I am listening and that what you're saying matters. And it's really important. It's one of the things that the, the word that I've used quite a bit in, in um, my um, understanding of, of how to express what people need to hear is the word normalise. Because one of the things that can happen when we're feeling like we're not okay and we're, you know, we know that we don't feel okay, but we're also comparing ourselves to what's going on out there and we think that we're not okay because we're not like that, we're not like that. And, you know, we're not like that person over there and we don't do those things over there, so we mustn't be okay. A lot of the time, and I remember just during the time that I was in uh, my counselling sessions back in my 20s, um, I actually, I remember distinctly saying to one of the um, counsellors, I just want to feel normal. I want to normalise what I'm feeling. I want to feel like I'm normal. And one of the, the whole things that goes on with that is that, not only is the brain, once it starts firing off and things are not working very well in the brain, the, the, the challenge that we have with that is that we're also trying to, um, trying to fit in. We want to fit in. So humans are generally, fairly typically, we are social creatures. But there's obviously differences in how, how that socialising takes place. Like I'm I'm the classic introvert. I, I like time on my own. And when I'm around people, fantastic. But I find that it's as much as it's fantastic, I need to go home and charge my batteries. You know, I, being around people and too much noise and too much distraction, I find actually almost mentally hurts. So I find I really value, and that's why COVID probably hasn't been too distressing for me in one sense. It's time for me to recharge, which I value. But from a social point of view, as you say, we, we can drop back and we can drop away from people. And um, the thing that I had experienced that I never wanted to put words to and I never wanted to admit to, and it took me even till you know, recent times and opening up and sharing my story, that I suffered from crippling, and I mean crippling, social anxiety to the point where if it meant going out and being around people, I had massive fear overload. So it would be things like 
Um, and I share the story in one of the books that I've written and, and just in some of the conversations that I have. Uh, I lived in a particular house in a particular country city and the bus stop was directly out front of the front gate. And I knew as part of the counselling sessions that I was through that she was, the council was trying to get me to find the courage just to get on the bus. And I couldn't, I couldn't get on the bus. I was terrified. Mm. Fear itself, the overwhelming fear, and this I can look back and think, oh, it was so ridiculous to be fit, but in the moment it's not ridiculous at all. I was terrified of making a fool of myself because that then bought into all the reasons that I'd been rejected throughout my childhood and all the things that had gone wrong and the reasons why I was never good enough, all that stuff. So even though the moment of getting on the bus was really just a, an outward expression of every fear that was going on inside of me, and I'd be standing on the footpath near the bus, the actual bus stop um, sign, but I wouldn't be standing at the sign. I had to put a little bit of distance there and I was kind of giving myself that potential out that if I saw the bus, I could at least just go back inside the gate and, and hide. And I remember seeing the bus coming and this one day I decided this is the day I'm going to do it. Um, and at that point, I felt my heart was just pounding in my chest. Mm. My fingers went cold and clammy. I'm sure all the blood drained out of my face and I couldn't breathe. I was all just hyperventilating. And my knees went to jelly and I'm, I'm standing there seeing this bus. It was, it was just a monolith to me. And, and as it pulled up, the only thing I could think of that would get me through that moment was to say to the bus driver, I don't know where I'm supposed to get off. And that scared me, scared me witless. And he was fabulous. He said, sit behind me, love. I'll, take, I'll just make sure you get where you need to go. I'll, I'll take care of you. And that was the turning point. That was the one pivotal moment that allowed me to realise if I used my voice and if I spoke up, I might just be okay. And, you know, that, that one story for me was kind of like the many different stories that took place. That over time, if I stood up and, and actually spoke, I'd be okay. And even if something went wrong, I still knew I'd kind of, I, I'd survived that moment. So those moments where we, we need to evaluate, are we actually okay and, you know, are we normal? It's surprising when you see what we think of as people over there that are actually normal are probably going through exactly that same turmoil, just that it presents in a different way and, and maybe they're just not verbalising it and sharing it and saying it and they're putting on the, you know, the tough outer armoury to make it look like they're perfectly okay because they don't want to be seen like they're a fool either. So it's all... So true. So true. How many of us, um, and especially men, I find they put on that mask, you know, and... and put on a brave face and try and put the smiley mask on. Really, when you when you take the time to ask a person if they're okay and they say, yeah, I'm fine, but really take the time to look into a person's eyes. Don't just find out if someone's okay. Actually, actually, you know, don't just ask, find out, I should say. Don't just ask if they're okay. Find out if people are okay because, yeah, they, they just might be needing that bus driver, as you said, just to give you that, it's okay to speak. It's okay to open up. And I love the way, um, and I do the same with my, with my clients with coaching is that, um, you, you give them permission 
to speak. You mm. give them that safe place to speak. So, um, and this is very true with the de-escalation workshops that I teach is that the use of strengths-based language, the use of um, names, interaction with clients, um, the right tone of voice, um, body language, all of these little factors um, speak volumes to a person that, that might be on the edge of opening up or not um, and telling them that you can see their pain. I can see you're in pain. What's happened for you today? I'm here to listen and and listen, actively listen. People, um, as you know, a lot of people just listen to hear or listen to respond. They don't yeah. listen to actually understand. Mm. But empathetic listening is such a powerful tool um, for someone to take that step forward into recovery and ask for help. Because once we're authentic in our listening, um, we're then authentic in our support. And that person who's receiving that then go then realises that it's okay. Mm. I feel okay now. Someone's actually listening to what I've got to say. Um, and, and listen without judgment. Whether you think it's right or wrong, whether you've got the facts behind you to say, no, actually, you're incorrect. We can't step in and say that because that person's feeling something that you can't feel. That person's thinking that uh, that you can't think because they've got that disconnect in their brain at the time. They're emotionally aroused. They need to bring that cortisol, cortisol level down. Let the brain start reconnecting, reprocessing logical thoughts and feelings. Um, and that's what we do to help them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really valuable that we get to have these sorts of conversations and, and it's it's really important to help people to understand that um, that there really are people in this world that are capable of helping you um, and mm. I feel gifted that I'm able to help. Um, you know, there's, it, it's, there's, I guess it's because of the basic, um, my basic understanding, I know what I went through and I know what helped me. So, you know, I want to be able to be that person that helps another. Um, it's really valuable that we're in a position where the, the difficulty that COVID is placing on many, you know, many people and the changes that it's brought about, I know that I feel very gifted that I'm able to provide such a platform such as The Voice on Fire um, and, you know, let people know that there are people like yourself that are available and making a difference in the world, reaching out and sharing and letting the world know that it's the, the lived experience, and particularly for men, as you mentioned, there are some, I wouldn't say there's some, there are a lot of men who really struggle to accept that they don't have to put on that brave face and the armoury and be the strong one. It, there's a need for us to acknowledge our emotions because by actually acknowledging our emotions and saying how we feel, that makes us strong. Um, it, it's not a weakness to acknowledge that you do want to cry. Like being emotional is actually a normal human experience. We have the fight, flight, freeze. We've got the... I've always considered it to be... Um, Fight, which is the anger, flight, which is the fear, and then the umbrella, and not even not even really an umbrella, but it's an umbrella for the opposite sort of feelings of the positive, which is love and nurturance. So we have to be able to have the balance. So we've, you know, for example, and and I look at it from a um, the studies that were done way 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 back, probably in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, little children 
who were born um, in orphanages that were never hugged, never given nurturance by a caregiver. Um, if they were left and only fed and, that, and, and their nappies were changed, the little babies would wither and die. Even though they were receiving proper nutrition, they would wither and die. And their studies soon understood that babies absolutely must be hugged and cuddled and touched and, and felt to be um, in safe, comfortable arms of the person that is the caregiver. Um, ideally, their, their maternal mother. But, you know, if that's not going to happen, well, you know, then they'd have to be with a nurse. It's got to be uh, close contact. And they found that once they discovered this and, and they were nurturing the babies and spending time with them and cuddling them and, and responding to them, the babies thrived. So there's mm -hmm. a need for us to recognise that babies that are born, they, they have a startle reflex. So if a baby feels like it's about to fall, it has the startle reflex. The arms go up, the eyes light up. It just feels like it's going to you know, fall. And we're born with this natural fear of falling. And we're also born with a natural fear of loud noises. They're our innate um, defence things. So you know, prehistorically, if you look back, there must have been reasons why we would have had those to protect us from predators. And, and we weren't the apex predator that we are today. So we've had these innate things. We, we were... Um, we, we naturally had to be frightened of things to protect ourselves. We naturally had to be able to defend ourselves if, you know, the, the pterodactyl was going to rip our arms off. You know, there's that sort of understanding of the basic instincts of what we had. But if we didn't have love and nurturance, we still wouldn't uh, survive anyway. So there's that need to understand that if not love and nurturance are the soft emotions, then at what point, as you were talking in that earlier story you shared about you know, little children not being allowed to feel their emotions, you're going to cry because you hurt yourself. That's understandable. So if crying is seen as a soft emotion, why do we feel the need that little boys are not allowed to feel those soft emotions? And when do we break that social conditioning so that we understand that feel the soft emotions, that's what they're there for. That'll make you become a stronger and better caregiver later because you'll have the heartfelt emotions and the authenticity in yourself to, to share and, and acknowledge and connect better and communicate better with those around you. I don't know, does any of that make sense? Yeah? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because communication, how we communicate as humans, there's only a very small percent, like less than 10% that, that is done through the actual words we speak. Um, like a, a third of it is is by the tone we use and the rest of it is body language, right? So like for me, you were talking about hugging there. Um, that's probably one of the biggest things that's impacted me COVID-wise because I'm a real tactile person. I love receiving hugs. I love giving hugs. And as you said, not just with children, but with adults too, a, a hug that lasts more than nine seconds actually has been proven to reduce your cortisol levels in your body so that nurturing factor that you have as a child that that is really important to his child is is just as important as adults and, and let's face it we're just big babies really um and that and that's how i see it i'm just as fragile now as i was as a as a newborn baby it's just that um you for, you don't realize how fragile you are because uh, physically you see a little cute baby and you think look that's so fragile and so tiny and needs protection and everything else but just because I'm a fully grown adult and you know nearly 50 years old I'm just as vulnerable as I was then I just didn't know it 
until I, I went through what I did. Now I lean into all of those vulnerabilities. And I don't, I don't mask. If I need to cry, I'll cry. And whether that's in a workplace setting, walking down the street at home. Um, it's important to me to be able to release my emotions is important to me because, Absolutely. because holding them in, um, you know, it's just creating a pressure cooker. So whether that's laughter or, or screaming out loud or crying or whatever that is, if I feel a need to get that out, I get that out. Mm. Um, yeah. and we really need to not just teach our children, but adolescents right the way through life that, um, there's no harm in that you know I've, I've done some amazing um experiences um through breath work uh, and things like that where i've actually experienced waves and waves of emotions and um, not just emotionally but f- that, that manifested in me physically um and that's just because i've I'd suppressed so much stress or trauma inside um and that's why I continue to try and experience those things, even though I'm in a position of positive psychology and I've been through treatment and therapy. We're still programmed to suppress and suppress and suppress. Even even being acutely aware of it as I am now, I, it, I still fall back into those bad habits of, of doing that from time to time. So I try and keep on top of that through... Um, journaling daily I, I, I write in a journal every single day um, to get thoughts out of my mind wherever that might be it might not be a great deal it might be six pages long of, of writing um, I express my emotions through poetry I love to write poetry um, to be able to use different words to be able to express feelings uh, and put it down on paper and I love to paint mm. um, and I'll you know physical exercise as well um, but I found in the past when I was um, distance running, and you can see all those medals hanging up behind me, but I've, mm-hmm. I've run 22 marathons. Um, wow. but I, I used to, I thought I loved distance running. Mm-hmm. Um, and to a point it was like a meditation for me to be able to put on my, my runners, get out, um, listen to my feet fall and breathe. And it was a point of meditation. But then what I didn't realize is that it became an, fed by my unrelenting standards um, and pushing myself to a point that I was, it was, it became self-sabotaging, became a punish, a way of punishing myself by going further and faster or even, you know, ridiculous things like um, I ran the Perth marathon with a back injury that doctors and physios had told me I shouldn't, but I did it anyway because I felt I had to. and since retiring from running after being hospitalized two years ago, I look at people and I'll run, I think, what are you doing that for? Mm. You know, I actually oh, shudders down my back when I think, well, about lacing my runners up and going out for 30Ks or 40Ks as I used to. Because I found something else now. I found mindfulness in less, in less, um, self-sacrificing ways you know I, I find it in ways that that create um a path of self-love rather than self-loathing which mm. i had for so long and still battle with today you know um body dysmorphia and and uh, that self-worth of physical being regardless of inward being 
Um, and these are the sort of things and lessons that um, and experiences I, I love to pass on to other people, especially men, because they don't talk about those those soft side and soft emotions as much as, as women do. Um, but one when they do that, they realise how powerful that is. Mm. You know? Absolutely. And you know, when when you can understand the power the power in vulnerability and the power in those softer emotions, it actually makes you stronger as a man. It makes you more of a man in my eyes. If you can accept and, and sit in them, like you said earlier, let them let that crap sitting around you ruminate and just fertilize your growth. Don't don't run away from the crap. Actually embrace it. Get comfortable in it. And let it and let it feed your growth. Be your own gardener, so to speak, yeah. rather than let someone else try and garden for you. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a wonderful experience. Once once you can feel that experience, and that's what I, you know, I I just feel smiling and warmth now when I'm talking about it because when I when I because I know I've experienced that mm-hmm. and embraced that softer side to me, then I know that I'm a, I'm a better person. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. And I know I'm going to be a great grand uh, grandfather to my granddaughter when she arrives because I now understand those softer emotions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just so important. And once we are willing to face the vulnerability and willing to understand it, even, uh, even if we break, and, and, you know, people fear that they're going to break and if they have a breakdown, they'll never recover and, you know, they're going to lose everything. And, you know, the fear of that can be so, so, so overwhelming. The breaking is actually what makes you. And the breaking, once you realise you can break, provided you're supported and you've got, you know, enough resources in, in terms of a person to reach out to or, you know, ways to understand the energies that are involved in, in what breaking really feels like, it's it's the rebuilding that just becomes infinitely powerful and it's i i actually now welcome falling apart i i just think mm-hmm. i can actually there's almost like a little part of me that can sit above it all going it's all good if, if you break you'll just rebuild and um i i, did I, it. I can too i can i can cry sometimes and then i fall and cry and i can i can be laughing straight afterwards because I've gone, that's, that's what made me feel good, you know. Um, and and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a full-blown traumatic cry, you know. It could be something simple that can touch me. Mm. Um, for example, I, I went with my daughter yesterday to one of his scans, you know, and I was, I was crying but smiling at the same time because I'm watching this beautiful... 3D scan on a on a huge screen, um, uh, looking at the, the the face and the hands of my granddaughter, um, and um, but years gone by, I, I would have just sat there smiling. I wouldn't have been crying. Mm. I would have been smiling, but I would have been sp- suppressing the other half of that soft emotion, which was the tears of joy, you know. And it's um, oh yeah, you just gotta embrace those tears. There's no there's no point shine away from them you just you just cause them more pain by keeping them inside yeah um and i meant you know if we weren't meant to cry we wouldn't have tear ducts we're meant to cry it's part it's part of our physical well-being as a mammal Mm -hmm. um 
reaching that rest and digest situation again. If you notice um, horses, they um, they go through a, a lot of. I've done some um, equine facilitated learning, and horses go through um, rest and digest by shaking and, and, and making audible sounds. And that the body shudders. Dogs do it similarly. They shudder once they've been through a stressful situation. Their body shudders, but that's them releasing emotion to be able to their body to go back into rest and digest. Um, but as humans, we've we used to do that back in back in the old um, caveman days, so to speak. We'd go through those same sort of emotions, um, and why we have those fight and flight situations. But as we've evolved over many many thousands of years we've we've forgotten how to recalibrate and yeah. we go to that rest and digest yeah um, because it, we're in such a busy busy world we've forgotten how to do that and that's where practicing mindfulness or doing breath work or meditation mm. is really important there's a lot of people uh, and especially in the corporate world well those those words mindfulness meditation and wellness have become these um, tick and flick words that are thrown about without truly understanding their meaning and why we have to practice those things or why we should practice those things because it's it's important not just for our mental well-being but that connection with physical manifestation i talk about my digestive system breaking down that's because i wasn't allowing my body to go to rest and digest mm. uh, i was i was in too uh, much uh, emotionally aroused space for so long for months and months and months my body started breaking down the mind gut connection had gone um that's when we talk about all of those things when people actually take the time to sit down and learn and understand they go oh it makes complete sense now and and we don't have to become yogas and uh, or yogis and, and buddhist monks and things um you know wellness or mindfulness can be um i go through an exercise with my clients about practicing mindfulness while making a cup of tea or coffee by in your on your mind just commentating through each stage talking to yourself i'm I'm now going to the cupboard to get the cup i'm placing the cup down on the side i'm filling the kettle with water that's mindfulness because you're just being present in that moment and time yeah um so we don't have to be you know, meditating monks, mindfulness can be a, a daily practice done really simply yeah. for a brief amount of time. And then once you get the benefit from it, then then it extends, you end up doing more and more of it because you know the benefit you're getting from it. 100%. Yeah, I, I, I echo that. I, I do something very, very similar. And um, the other thing that I really like what we've spoken about there is the breath work. Um, I do a lot of that with um, people and, and one of the key things I do almost with every client I've spoken to, whether it's been someone I've done a free session with just to see if they need some help or if it's, you know, one of my ongoing clients is breath work and it's that simplicity of understanding are you actually holding your breath or are you shallow breathing? And people quite often, they have a bit of a fear intake sort of thing and it's like the fear intake and then they hold it and they forget. And then when they're releasing it, it's kind of almost like that really shallow breathing and they don't realise that they're only breathing in their lungs. I know I do a lot of belly work and um, mm-hmm. I used to 
things like brain hacks and things like that to try and you know rewire the way someone's thinking about something and and doing it in a way that they don't realize that they're rewiring their brain at the time they're doing it and it's just beautiful to watch the outcome like, and the feedback i get from people it's just mind-blowing that they experience instant change in their world through something as minute as the way they breathe or the way they yeah. do something differently and it's free right we we're breathing anyway yeah. but what we've studies have shown that as as society we 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 are shallow breathers as as adults we become these shallow breathing people and and as such what you're actually doing is not is not oxygenating your system as much as you should be so as you rightly said not only are you um getting someone to be present and um reducing their cortisol levels and, and getting them to to start thinking inwardly but you're actually filling the the body with oxygen that they, they're not normally getting in so those meaningful breaths so whichever type of breath work you're doing yeah because it, it's just so powerful and and it helps then put your body in that position of of rest and digest but and also stress relieving yeah. you know release get that that stress out of your body detox your body of those feelings yeah, yeah breath work's so powerful but it's free and yeah. people don't understand it it's just and it can you know you could do a 10 minute breath work session every morning uh, and and i do i do a 15 minute breath work session every morning but some days um if i've got time or i feel like i want to i, I might do a 30 minute or a 45 minute mm. session to get really deeper into um, those stress relieving situations and, and rest and digest. Yeah. All engaging that vagus nerve and yeah. through yeah. the belly, through the diaphragm, getting through those those breathing techniques. It's yeah. powerful. Yeah, really it's, powerful. Yeah, it's 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 insane that as you say, it's something that we do, you know, if we don't if we don't breathe we die. I mean it's as simple as that. You know, they say that you can go three weeks without food, three days without water and three minutes without air and you know, if we want to survive, we have to breathe. And you know, we we're gonna we're gonna breathe anyway. Um, and I I've, I often quote with some of my clients that um, some babies um, and as they become toddlers and, and little children um, develop because of the behaviours going on in their environment around them, they develop the breath holding technique. They don't. That's obviously not what they're consciously thinking. But you know, something stops them from breathing. It could be a fear thing, and they suddenly realize that if they're not breathing they get lots of attention so that you know the caregiver is suddenly there giving them attention um, and just that breath hold it becomes something that they do and they actually actively do it and they'll breath hold to the point where the brain switches off the ability to actually re-engage the brain the breathing capacity i can't explain it you know in fairly long-winded process but pretty much the brain switches off and the ability to then breathe just switches off and it can re-engage but you'll see the little babies will turn blue the you know little kids will just fall on the floor and they'll turn blue and they've held their breath for so long that their brain can't re-engage properly that automatic system of breathing and you know it, it's it's life-threatening and there are some there's only a very small percent the average probably about one percent of people around the world who actually have it as a condition where they become adults and they still do it and it's it's such an ingrained and, and it's it's frightening to think that people will hold their breath for that long. Um, but, you know, it's, and it's on the flip side, it's fantastic and amazing to watch the brain hacks 
of those people that train their body to go without air for you know 17 minutes, 18 minutes at a time as part of a brain technique. But again, that's something that you practice over an incredibly long and very, very mm. uh, specific period of time with lots of training. You, you, don't do it, you don't do it lightly. I advocate for everyone to breathe properly. I take everyone through a deep breath exercise if I'm taking them through. And it's, it's the most liberating feeling. And when you understand what air and oxygen and breathing is doing to help heal your body and heal your mind, once you get into the habit of it, you don't want to stop it. It's actually such a beautiful feeling to be able to breathe because it's instantly relaxing. Um, and as I've said to one of my clients is you can't deep breathe and be anxious at the same time. Once you yep. deep breathe, 100%. the world is just a calmer place and, you, and it, you can choose to deep breathe, but you've got to be taught. And I find I've, I've done lots of different breathing from the square breathing to the um, circular breathing and, you know, I haven't. I have to say, I'm about to giggle when I say I haven't mastered the old, um, the the amazing capacity of people who play the didgeridoo. That circular breathing. I, I play. Oh, would love to know how they do that. But again, that's sort of digressing into another another topic. I play. I've I've played the didgeridoo for twenty something years. Fantastic. Um, yeah, and it's. Takes, it takes a lot of practice, and when we don't pick it up for a while, it takes a little bit of getting into. But yeah. Uh, it's uh, that is a powerful meditation right there if i get into a zone on the ditch i could be playing for 20 30 minutes and not even know i could yeah. just get lost yeah. and people i I'd, I'd be playing for or with me when i'm playing they're like how'd you keep going for that long what you know and i'm like how long was it going you know i'd be like it's just a couple of minutes and they're like you're going there for like 30 minutes and i was like oh, okay yeah. you know it's it's very powerful it's yeah, beautiful it's beautiful instrument yeah, absolutely. And and just it reminds me just that whole necessity of once you learn how to do something that relates to your breathing, you once you master that and you understand the impact you're having on your body, then it's one thing you just realise that you're actually doing something to help heal your body. I mean, it's just the healing process. So I think that, you know, we've covered a lot of different topics here. There's so many things that we obviously are very familiar in, in our own ways with the, you know, the, the power of healing and breathing and all of that kind of thing. Now, you've mentioned um, in our conversation today that you've got a program that you're developing, which you're expecting to probably release around the end of the year. Are there any things mm -hmm. like any books in the process, uh, you know, that you've got happening? What's sort of on the agenda going forward uh, for Jason Nelson? A few things, Terry, to be honest. Yeah, the um, the speaking academy, which is going to be called Jnana, uh, which is Hindi for uh, knowledge through wisdom. So it's that meditation through knowledge to gain wisdom. So learning from our experience to then become more wise. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be called Jnana uh, Alchemy Academy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about just leaning into our experiences and then being able to verbalize them. Uh, so coaching people to be able to tell their story um i'm trying to um reach out to a few publishers at the moment with regards to my poetry mm -hmm. and try and get some of those published um since i was first ever diagnosed with um depression um 12 years ago i've actually been writing my autobiography but um <laughs> as as i keep going more chapters appear so uh, i have I have long service leave next year, so my plan is to to knuckle down 
uh, and get that finished next year to hopefully get that out. And that again, you know, I'm, I'm not doing it to to make money. Um, I just want to be able to share my story to be able to hopefully, uh, yeah, so it resonates with people so they can they can reach out. And throughout the chapters, there's going to be some sort of tips and tactics there to help people um, to be able to um, look inwardly, I suppose, see what their own strengths and interests are, uh, and then and seek whatever help they, they need to help seek. Um, obviously, if you need professional help and professional support, you, you must always reach out and get that. But the, there are so many things you can do for yourself just by taking responsibility and, and uh, making some minor changes that can really improve your own mental fitness anyway. So that's where I'm at at the moment. Uh, and obviously, as I've mentioned before, soon to be grandfather at the end of the year. So experience all that magic um, along the way as well. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, excellent. And I know that once COVID's sort of run its course, look, by the end of the year, I'm not expecting anything miraculous to happen before the mm. 2021 dawns upon us. Um, obviously, I imagine that, you know, once once we're able to, you'll be taking to the stage and sharing your story as a speaker as well. Something I really enjoy is getting around the country um, and and sharing my truth with other people. Mm. Um, yeah, whether that's in a room of 15 people or on a conference stage in front of 600 um, I, I love to share my story. Um, sometimes I get emotional sharing it. Sometimes I don't. Um, but that again shows the power of that vulnerability and, and sharing that story. Um, yeah. When I think of Holly or think of what I went through, sometimes I shed a few tears, but I don't stop those tears from falling when I'm speaking. It just makes it a lot more authentic. But yeah, I'm missing that. I'm missing, I'm missing getting about. I'm missing doing my workshops and, and, um, speaking to people but as I said before it gives me time to to hone in on my own skills make those improvements that you don't always get the time to do when you are busy and to improve or you know sit within and, and really you know do a bit of rebranding and refocusing on on what I want to do and, and, and COVID's definitely opened my eyes to that a bit more mm. you know that social isolation which a lot of people are really living with at the moment um, uh, and you know, and those fears around certain communities of that are really experiencing uh, that community um, contact and, and spreading of the virus uh, must be must be heartbreaking, must be really terrible for people's anxiety. But um, yeah, rather than uh, just getting through the physical virus side of stuff, there's going to be a lot of fallout afterwards. I think where a lot of people are going to be impacted for a longer period of time uh, mentally rather than physically yeah yeah for sure and i and i i echo that whole um experience there and you're just referencing that covid's going to have a long-term uh, impact even once the the actual medical side of it's under control people's lives have been affected and you know it, it sounds like you and i perhaps echo one thing that's that's really um apparent to us we're we're in that position of being gifted to be able to be there to help people and I'm I'm extremely grateful that I'm able to, you know, um, get through this situation to myself relatively unscathed 
in that, yeah, I, I've been able to manage my situation, so I'm glad for that. Um, but it's more important to me that I, I'm there to be able to reach out and, and if people want some support, I can be that support. And, you know, I think COVID's really going to be opening up the, the, the um, conversations that people need help, people need to realise that they can reach out. And, and as we were saying earlier, um, you know, your details will be available through the description in this particular video um, and also on the podcast. Um, and just, you know, if anyone wants to reach out and if you feel that things perhaps have been a little bit triggered by this particular um, conversation, that's actually a good thing. It's a good thing that you're feeling that, but take that extra step and reach out because there are people who care and want to help you through. And you can, as Jason said, if you take just that bit of responsibility and that can mean reaching out, you can change your own life just by having the courage to realise that your life matters and that you can make a difference and you can be somebody that can really get back into the joy of life. So, um, Absolutely, Terry. And before we close out, I really want to speak to emergency service workers out there. Being a former police officer, um, I know the emergency services and also the use of the defence forces, nurses, doctors. They're doing it even tougher than a lot of us because they're having to face the fears, having to face that virus on the front line with very little protection um, to be able to... The, to make sure the wider community is, is safe. Um, so I want to reach out to those emergency service workers. If you any of you are struggling, please reach out to me. I'm more than happy to help. I've got other peer support through uh, the charity I work with, Sirens of Silence Charity. Um, we specialise in helping emergency service workers. You don't have to do this alone, as well as the amazing work you're doing to to help people battle this terrible virus and keeping us safe on the streets. Um, that's on top of the work you're already doing. The people, you know, facing the, the worst of society and going to people who, you know, injured, having cardiac arrests, all those type of things, fighting fires. You've got the additional threat of this virus on top of that. So please reach out. Don't do it tough. And I mean that for the whole community as well. Um, let's, um, hold our hands together throughout this because we can get through it together um, as long as we, we reach out and help each other. Um, you know, um, there's no point in in doing it tough on your own when we can do it tough together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just want to reach out to those first responders, emergency service workers, nurses, doctors, the likes. I'm here to help if need be. Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone who does want to reach out, Jason's details will be provided. I'll make sure that I grab all of the links that he has for any um, websites or any um, email or phone numbers, whatever we need to do. We'll supply that so that anyone that's tuned into this video, um, you'll be able to go to the description and find the contact information. So, Jason, thank you so much. It's been a really, really intriguing and, and fascinating conversation. I think we've covered so much information that um, we've, we've helped, I think, just anybody that does watch or listen, we've helped to not only inspire but also just to remind them that, you know, together we can get through things. I think you've been a, a real inspiration with your story and uh, I just want to say thank you so much for giving me your time today and uh, I look forward to sharing this uh, video with my audience. So grateful for you, Terry. It's been a real pleasure today. My absolute honour to be able to be part of this and 
share my story and, and help you reach out to your audience and uh, yeah, the wider community. Hopefully um, with these type of messages we can send out, we can make people realize that um, mental fitness is, is just a challenge. It's just another challenge. It's, it's something that can be faced and beaten. So yeah, thank you. So grateful for you, Terry. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. All right.